thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. And remember, it gets very busy. The more weird your question, probably the more interesting to everyone else. So, good morning, Chris. Hey, good morning. I heard you chuckling there. Don't you find the weirder <laughs> questions like the more interesting intellectually? Oh, no, always, always. It was just you have a wonderful way with words. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I was just sort of, my mind was boggling as to what might now turn up. But uh, there we are. <laughs> Let's see what we're in store for. In the meantime, a very serious but a very important science story this week. Uh, many people battle multiple sclerosis. I have a friend um, who was diagnosed with it. And there seems to be an interesting story here about gene therapy. Yes. Scientists think they've got a new way, possibly, to halt this condition in its tracks. Backing up slightly, what is MS or multiple sclerosis? This is where your own immune system attacks your nervous system. And what it's going for is a protein um, or a clutch of proteins in a substance called myelin. Myelin is a fatty material that surrounds the nerve fibres that connect different parts of your brain together. And this relentless immune attack slowly strips away the myelin and it means that the ability of nerve cells to communicate faithfully to each other is progressively lost. And this is what leads to the disability in the patient. And because the immune attack doesn't go away and keeps recurring, then the person becomes progressively more disabled in many cases. I mean, it's a very diverse condition. Sometimes it progresses fast, sometimes more slowly. But at the moment, the only thing we can offer people who have it is profound immune suppression. You switch off their immune system, at least for a while, and sometimes this causes the disease to go into remission at least for a while. Mm. Now, the problem is there are lots of side effects of turning off the immune system. You become vulnerable to infection. You can become more vulnerable to getting certain kinds of cancer. So what researchers at the University of Florida, and this is Brad Hoffman and his colleagues, have done, and they've announced in the journal Molecular Therapy this week, is they have taken a harmless virus. It's just called AAV, adeno-associated virus. They've put into that virus a genetic cargo in the form of one of the proteins which is found in your myelin, in your brain and spinal cord, which is normally the target of this immune attack. This is a protein called MOG, or myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein. They inject this virus into mice with the rodent equivalent of multiple sclerosis, and it goes to the liver. The liver cells then make a lot of this MOG protein and re-educate the immune system stimulating the production of what are called regulatory T-cells or T-regs. These are parts of the immune system, but unlike the cells that are trying to attack the nervous system, these cells can damp down the activity of those rogue T-cells that are doing the damage. And so what happens is that in mice that are about to develop multiple sclerosis, they can completely stop this process happening at all, And in mice that already have and are already showing neurological disability because of their equivalent of multiple sclerosis, they can stop the disease getting any worse, and the mice also show a degree of functional improvement. Now, obviously, they're very cautious to emphasise this is early days, this is in a mouse, this is not a human, and this is not taking someone with very advanced disease and reversing them back to being perfectly healthy. 
but what they are confident they can do with this technique is to stop the disease becoming very bad and very entrenched in the first place. So it may offer us a new way in a new diagnosis of multiple sclerosis to reprogram the immune system and divert the disease down away from the track it was going to go and onto a much more benign or indolent or non-progressive course. Nine minutes after ten, you can put your questions to the Naked Scientist. The lines are now open. Tap hello, good morning. Yeah, morning, how are you, Sylvius? We're very well, thank you. What is your question? Um, I just want to ask the Naked Scientist, I've read articles saying Planet X is slowly approaching Earth. It might hit on Saturday, is it true? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Hi, Tapello. No, you're okay. You can go to the match. You don't have to regard this as your last day on Earth. Um, there is no planet approaching Earth. I've not come across that. We do have near-Earth objects zipping past on a fairly frequent basis. Near-Earth objects are objects which are not planets, but they are large chunks of material. They include comets. They also include big bodies of rock like asteroids and bits of asteroid. They, they are lots of them, and for many years scientists have been tracking lots of them, and we know where most of the big ones are. And because these things are travelling over very huge distances and can be observed over a long period of time, we can work out what their trajectory is to a reasonable degree of accuracy and therefore at the moment scientists are comfortable that there's not something lurking out there in space ready to come and wipe us out, at least at the moment. But the, the reality is that it could happen and it has happened in the past and that's why there are no dinosaurs on Earth because about 65 million years ago a very significant chunk of rock which originally came from the asteroid belt out between Mars and Jupiter, that ended up on a collision course with Earth and it changed the climate and, uh, and altered the pattern of Earth's history irreversibly. A question from Hussey that we almost put to you last week, Chris, and then the gremlins got in the way oh. and he's reminded us of this. Hussey wants to know, are there examples of homosexuality uh, in the rest of the animal kingdom, i.e. Um, excluding us humans? The answer is yes, and in fact we did actually look at this as what we call a question of the week on The Naked Scientist. A, a gentleman called Khalil Thurlaway, who worked with us about two and a half years ago, actually looked into this in some detail. Um, you can find that if you go on The Naked Scientist website and look up question of the week, you'll, you'll find it. I think it, he, he put the title as bromance or something like that in the animal world. The answer to this is that there are many examples of animals having homosexual relationships. But the big caveat here is that this means something quite specific to humans it does it does it necessarily mean the same thing to animals we don't know because we don't really know what animals are thinking it's certainly true that animals will have same-sex relationships in the animal world but do they realize that that this is different for them do they realize that this is not going to lead to reproduction or are they maybe getting it wrong we don't know um so the answer is you can definitely see examples of this which argues that it's Many people say, oh, this is wrong in humans. What, what we think is probably going on is that this is something which is very common in the animal kingdom and that, that uh, it's only us that apply special significance to the relationships between men and women and because that's what we've sort of evolved to do. But actually, if you look in the animal world, you'll find lots of examples where this isn't the case. Yeah, and the moral philosophy student in me, Chris, can't help add the obvious that science can't settle a normative moral question. You put it better than I could. Because <laughs> I think that's probably what was lurking behind that question. Natasha and Ravonia, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Very well, thanks, Natasha. Go ahead. 
All right, Dr. Kristen, let me find out. Um, I watched a clip yesterday regarding um, cancer and vitamin B17. I must admit, I'm not a regular listener, so you may shoot me if you must, if it was already discussed. But I just want to find out. Um, in the clip, it said that uh, cancer is basically, as, as was with scurvy, a deficiency of vitamin B17, where with scurvy, it is a deficiency of its, uh, vitamin C. And people end up dying because of that, and when they got vitamin C, they survive. So is it some simply clear cut of that or what's the law regarding it? Thank you, Natasha. Hello, Natasha. Well, th- there's no evidence that cancer is exclusively caused by the deficiency or oversupply of one vitamin in particular. Um, people have been studying cancer for a long time because it's such a major problem. About one person in three will develop a cancer in their lifetime. Uh, will certainly probably 100% of the population will know someone who has been impacted by cancer. And when we look at cancer, what what cancer is, is a genetic disease. In all of our cells, with one or two exceptions, there's a complete copy of your genetic information that makes you you. And different genes are turned on in different cells and they're controlled very rigidly so that they tell that cell they're in what to do and how to behave. The DNA is also full of mechanisms to repair itself and also deactivate the cell like a tripwire if something goes wrong. But because our cells are being assailed all the time by things that can damage DNA, this includes radiation, it includes reactive oxygen from the food we eat, and so on, other toxins, alcohol, all these things damage your DNA a bit, smoking, another example, then your DNA is continuously having to fix itself. But over a lifetime, if you damage the things that are doing the fixing, the ability to fix the damage becomes less good. So eventually, out of the 37 trillion or so cells that are in an adult human, you can disclose the odd one, which eventually loses the ability to keep a tight rein on what that cell's doing and what the genes in that cell are doing. And once that goes out of control, you then have a runaway train. Because once you lose the control on how your cell is controlling itself it can then become uncontrollable and lots of changes can accumulate. And some of those changes endow on the cell the ability to start growing without consideration for its neighbours. They cause it to grow without consideration for how old it is or how clapped out it is. They cause it to grow without consideration for the biochemistry of the body. Effectively, it becomes autonomously replicating. And then it starts to do other things like secrete chemicals into the bloodstream that shouldn't be there because it's got your entire genetic repertoire to play with. And this is why cancer shouldn't be regarded just as the mere presence of some cells that are misbehaving and growing too much in one part of your body. Cancer is a systemic disease. It's your entire body that gets impacted because of the signals the biochemistry being thrown out and the cancer spreading around the body. So how we have to tackle cancer is going to be unique to each individual cancer because each individual cancer that a person has is going to have a unique repertoire of changes in its DNA. There'll be some common features, but there will also be unique changes in the DNA of those cells. And therefore, the way in which that cancer is best managed and best treated in an ideal world is going to be a personal thing. And the way the world is moving, the direction medicine's going, is towards more personalised medicine. You will take samples from a person, you will work out why their cancer has happened, you will work out what's wrong with their cells to make them cancerous, and then you work out what the best way to manage, maybe by editing their DNA, putting in various chemicals that will hit those cells exclusively, how to manage that person better. It won't just come down to one particular deficiency or one particular supplement. It'll come down to a whole um, panoply of different treatments that will target that disease. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 
Peter, good morning. Oh, um, Chris, morning. Uh, during a cyclone or a heavy uh, hurricane, as, as uh, they are occurring in the Bahamas now, the water that falls as rain must be drawn up out of the sea and does it fall as fresh water or does it is it brackish i wonder if you could answer that well lovely question Hi, Peter. Yeah, uh, the answer is this is largely falling as fresh water. Now, there are very high wind speeds of, you know, more than 100, maybe 200 kilometres per hour in some of these big storms, which are going to blow water off the sea horizontally. Uh, So there will be some salty stuff in the air as well. But what's coming down from above as part of the storm will be fresh water. And the reason for this is that these hurricanes are just giant storms which are fuelled by very high sea surface temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico. So the sun has warmed up the sea. The sea, when it gets hot like this, evaporates. But because the salt particles, you have to give them much more energy to boil those off. They cling on to the water much harder just fresh water molecules are boiled off from the sea. They uh, are warm, they're in a body of warm air, and this is much less dense, so it rises. So what ends up up higher up in the atmosphere is saturated water, fresh water saturated air, which then condenses that water into raindrops, which when the storm makes landfall, it then comes raining down. So it's fresh water. Anthony in Lanasia, good morning. Good morning, man. Um, I need to find out why do majority of smokers always smoke after a meal? Oh, that's a good one. And, and as I'm not a smoker myself, I, I, can't, I can't possibly speak for people who are smokers and, and do seem to prefer that. I think part of it's the social side of things. Um, my friends who do or have smoked um, often do, some, do, the, do go for a cigarette together. And I wonder if part of when you're sitting down after your meal, because obviously if you're trying to, trying to eat, it's a bit inconvenient if you've got a sort of fag in one hand and a burger in the other or a knife and fork or whatever. You don't know what to do with your cigarette, your knife and your fork or your burger or whatever. So therefore, the, the, the time to actually have a smoke that's convenient when you're feeling full and now I've had my meal, now it's time to sit down and have a smoke, it is when you're having your coffee after dinner. So that's why many people say smoking and coffee often goes hand in hand as well. So I suspect it's partly a convenience thing and partly a social thing. Paul, good morning. I just wanted to know, I watched the movie about Everest the other night and when the guys were in extreme conditions and um, they were batting to get down, they go into some sort of mental shock or something and they, their body starts telling them that they're hot and they start taking off all their clothes and i just wondered why the body does that because generally it's got such brilliant survival mechanisms yeah um it's a brilliant film isn't it um the reason for this is that um the body works best at body temperature and it fights very hard to keep your temperature to as close to 37 degrees c ish as it can And this includes various mechanisms to lose heat when you become too warm. This includes diverting blood to the skin surface. It includes um, opening up sweat glands so that you can sweat. It also includes things like diverting blood away from the skin surface when you're cold, um, increasing your metabolic rate, giving you the idea of putting on a, a jumper, retreating into some shelter. And the thing is that all of this is programmed by your nervous system. And the the nervous system works incredibly well when it's in ideal conditions. And again, your body fights very hard to keep the biochemistry and and the operating conditions for your brain spot on. But when you're under extreme conditions, you're very tired, you're very stressed, and you get very cold.
then as a result, then the brain starts to play tricks on you. In the same way that when you get very, very tired, you can hallucinate and you can see things that are not there, you can hear things that are not there sometimes, um, and, and you have sort of a strange dreamlike state, people do suffer bouts of confusion. And hypothermia, which is when the body temperature falls too low, can exacerbate this. And so people then stop feeling cold because their brain's not working properly. And if the temperature sensor that's telling you you're cold no, long, no longer works properly, you don't know that you're feeling cold. And so as a result, these survival instincts and mechanisms that normally safeguard your survival fail. And, and then people start doing all kinds of bizarre things. And, and that's when it gets really, really dangerous. It's a bit like the fuel gauge in your car. It's, uh, it's all very well while it's working. But then when it stops working, how do you know if you've run out of fuel? Because the fuel gauge says tank is full. Frida, good morning. What do you want to ask? Oh, hi, Eusebius and Chris. Um, I just wanted to know about sleep paralysis. Is it a disorder or condition and can it be cured? Yeah, hi, sleep Frida. Paralysis, Chris, Th- this is, is a well-known phenomenon. It's well described. And in fact, I, I said there was um, a reference on The Naked Scientist to the question about same-sex relationships among animals earlier um, and referred people there. We've also got a very nice article that uh, a young lady who researches this wrote on sleep paralysis. So if you go to nakedscientist.com, you'll find that. And incidentally, I found the item the program we made on same-sex relationships in animals if you follow at naked scientists on twitter everybody i will tweet the reference for you at the end of the program so that you can then pick that up um but sleep paralysis oh lovely brilliant thank you eusebius now with sleep paralysis this is a well-known phenomenon people who have this describe the following they say that they might wake up and they have this terrifying experience that they are completely paralyzed They cannot move, they cannot move their arms and legs, and and if they're having a dream or something when this happens, then they're fearful that they can't get away. And it then spontaneously goes away, and then they're fine again. These are fit, young, healthy people very often. It's not that they've had a stroke or something, but that's often what people think might have happened to them, because it it only happens transiently, and it doesn't happen consistently all the time. It just happens to some people some of the time. We think what's going on is that in the brain stem which is the part of the nervous system that connects the brain at the top to the spinal cord lower down, there is a region of nerve cells which have the job of when you go to sleep and you are um, unconscious, they deactivate a lot of the flow of information out of your brain down towards the muscles and the control and the centres that control your muscles in your spinal cord. And the purpose of that is to give you a restful night's sleep. Because when you're dreaming, you don't want to be jumping out of bed and jumping out the window. You want to suppress that sort of information. So you have this region called the subcerulea region in the brainstem, which gates the flow of information coming from higher up in your brain that would normally make you move. And scientists have done experiments on animals where they've temporarily or permanently deactivated the subcerulea region in the brainstem. And animals after that lose the ability to paralyse themselves when they go to sleep. And when they go to sleep, they start prancing around stalking imaginary prey and all that kind of thing so with sleep paralysis we think that what's happening is that when you wake up this normally would turn off for some reason the deactivation of the paralyzing state is temporarily delayed for some reason in some people for a little while and as a result they can't move and yet they're awake um luckily it does it doesn't seem to happen too often for too many people but it is quite frightening when it happens chris have a beautiful weekend thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with thank us. you have a great weekend, everybody, and thanks for the great questions as well. See you soon. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. 
the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.